Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where our purpose is to learn more about how effective charities and individuals achieve social change or social impact. I'm your host, Alex Blake, and I'm joined today by Amanda Batten, Chief Executive of Contact, the charity for families with disabled children. Amanda joined Contact as Chief Executive in May 2014, and I can't believe it's been eight years already. Uh, It looks like it's been a successful period for the charity with a new name and brand, and it looks like pretty much doubling income. And Amanda's bio tells us, and I know because I was there, that she was previously Director of External Affairs at the National Autistic Society, where she led a multi-award winning campaign to secure the Autism Act, the first ever condition-specific legislation, and played a key role in supporting the development of autism strategies in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Amanda studied economics and politics at Birmingham University and holds an MSc in voluntary sector management with a distinction from Cass Business School. She's also the chair of the Disabled Children's Partnership Campaign. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you, Alex. Yeah, good. Thanks. Glad to be here. Let's start with a quick, easy question to get us warmed up. Mm -hmm. What charity did you give your most recent donation to and why? So apart from my regular charity giving, the last one, it's not very original, I'm afraid, is to the Ukraine uh, DUC appeal um, for for obvious reasons. Uh, Yeah, those kind of crisis appeals and emergencies are always a a bit of a difficult prompt to ignore, (laughs) apart from anything else, aren't they? Absolutely. And I think in terms of, I think particularly over the last few weeks as well, seeing some of the footage from Ukraine around treatment of disabled adults, I found that particularly particularly challenging to watch and engage with. Can you tell us first of all just a bit of background for context what was it that motivated you to work in this sector in the first place and I don't know whether that kind of goes back to childhood or university or did you move straight into the sector or did you do other things first? So I've always been interested in politics and I worked in when I left university I interned in think tanks and then worked in Westminster in Parliament and I think maybe it's not a terribly interesting answer but I think I was always want I was always going to wanted to work in something around challenging social injustice social exclusion and I think it's kind of instinctive maybe to move into a sort of lobbying policy role for a charity and I think that instinct is probably right because I think in terms of my skill set I'm probably better at kind of strategy type thinking than I would have been as a sort of lawyer or you know going into a more legal route for challenging those kind of social injustice social exclusion issues so I think I went the right way but I think in some ways that was just more instinct and and luck to some extent and I always wanted to work within sort of social social exclusion or social justice causes and, and in a sort of within UK policy sort of context. That's interesting so I think I it might be a common theme for people in the sector. I think for me as well, it was definitely that wanting to address social injustice in some way and not necessarily having a clear idea of exactly what that... I mean, I know for some people it's like a really personal, it will be one particular issue they want to campaign on. And then for lots of people, it's kind of something around social injustice and then either, as you said, you you had you kind of had that interest to work in more of the policy context. And then for others of us, we kind of fall into one area or another Mm. and I've had lots and lots of people in fundraising they kind of fall into fundraising and then end up kind of working in that field yeah and I wonder if that's changing for the next sort of generation of people coming through I don't think I think it was an obvious route for me because if you work in parliament and you go into a lobbying role you either go into or a better paid role in private for for corporates or you Uh go into the charity sector and lobby yeah. for more cause or space, which is obviously more interesting and not as well paid, but it's more interesting as well as fitting with values. Yeah. But I don't know whether, I don't, I, I wonder whether the next generation kind of see charities in the same way as mm. a kind of route to ad- address social exclusion and social justice in a way that was quite natural for me. And I think that's probably a bit of a challenge for recruitment for the, for the sector going going forward. Mm, that's really interesting, that kind of echoes a conversation I had with Paul Knott the other day talking about the sector because he, he, he kind of said yeah. something along the lines of charities not maybe not being such an attractive career choice for people as maybe it used to be maybe 
just cut some of the negative kind of coverage in the media and that type of thing. Didn't, didn't go into huge amounts of detail. He will be coming on the podcast. So I can probe him a bit more about it. But he was saying that for young people thinking about social change, that it being less of an obvious one and there being more, you know, some of the kind of tech startups and things being something perhaps as a way of kind of driving change in society. Because there are more routes now, aren't there? There are more sort of, more sort of, social enterprise uh, yeah vehicle. there's more there's more vehicle there's more of a blend between corporate and organizations with a social conscience which maybe that it was a bit yeah. more clear-cut maybe when i sort of started out but i think what charity brings is that what working in charities brings is that real connection with cause which is maybe a little bit more yeah. a little bit step back in some of those other other routes because i think when I, although I didn't have any strong personal connection to autism, when I started working at the National Autistic Society and I met people with autism and I met their families, that's what, although I had a general interest coming in, it was in social justice. It was meeting those families and connecting with those people with autism that really mm. connected with me and has given me the commitment to stay in the disability field for the next 20 years so it was a really powerful yeah I found it was a really powerful ex- experience for me I think it's a good point again because actually I think when I spoke to Mark about the autism act I think that he mentioned a few things but the personal testimonies from families I think was one of the kind of strongest points that helped to really mm. get that through and convince MPs to take that bill forward. I stumbled across an article in Third Sector from around 2016 which is really short but had quite a few really interesting points within a couple of paragraphs so I'm just going to read out those two paragraphs and then ask you a little bit to expand on some of that. We'll give a bit of context before this in the article had kind of spoken about charity chief executives and how, what they traditionally would look like. And then it says, I'm hardly groundbreaking, but I was 36. I'm female, an introvert and a campaigner by trade. The truth is that I didn't always see myself ending up in this sort of role, but now I'm here, I love it. Talking about your current role at Contact. The light bulb moment that made me take the step was actually lit by colleagues in the sector who helped me to rethink the chief executive role in a way that works for me. Since then, I've battled with how fast to pace change, my unreasonable expectations of myself and my my nightmare diary. But the learning has come with the flurry of light bulbs. I've discovered the importance of a great chair and the true value of friends and mentors within the sector. Ultimately, I've learned that feedback from others is critical to reappraising and developing the value we can all add to the causes we believe in. So as I said, is it like about half a dozen points at least that we could kind of dig into? And I think some of them will come up in the conversation anyway. And I think that just shows, I think I'm a bit, I'm definitely more eloquent in writing than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Can we start, first of all, just to maybe the kind of 60 second version of a description of what contact does as a charity for context and then if you can expand a little bit on what you said in that article about feeling like the ceo role wasn't for you through to taking on the role and how your thinking might have changed around that Mm. now that you're kind of eight years in yeah okay so contact is uh we are the uk charity for families with disabled children and we do three things we support families information and advice we bring families together for peer support which in the long run is so important and then we work with those networks of families to campaign for change yeah that's that's so that's what we do um and how what was the second question how i've why i didn't feel that the ceo role was for me yeah i don't know really i think lots of people talk about imposter syndrome and i actually i don't have that (laughs) i i I have sort of although i am naturally a kind of more introvert so and shy person I guess I do have a sort of realistic I think sense of sort of confidence and you know, sort of self-worth and a reasonable awareness of what I'm good at and what I'm not I think I just it didn't occur to me perhaps to, to look at a CEO role I think when you look at the people in those roles they seemed different to me and I just hadn't really considered it and I think I think it, it took people to point that point it out to me really <laughs> to, to make me think oh yeah maybe I could do that and how could I do that because I think a CEO role is so broad uh-huh. and so varied and that's what makes it great that's what I re- really enjoy about it mm. but it's also what makes it challenging too 
And I think the CEO role is very different in different charities. So in a charity like Contact, although that are, we are a campaigning organisation and that's important, actually you couldn't, I couldn't do my role without a reasonable level of financial um, capability or, or, or acumen because we have quite a complex financial structure. And I think maybe that's, yeah. if in other organisations, that ambassador role might be might be more of the more important and more of the role so I think I think it's quite hard sometimes to understand what a CEO role is because it is different in different places and for different people because you naturally in a way have the scope to claw play to your strengths mm. in it and I think I remember when I was well early in my career when I was a policy officer working with yeah. partners and a more senior colleague at RNID at the time we were talking about something and she said to me just something like oh you can you can do that when you're a CEO. And I remember just thinking completely like, what? <laughs> like, like, I just, you know, was really surprised, but it, that really stayed, it was a kind of quite a short comment, but it, it, it really stayed with me uh, because I thought, oh, maybe somebody else thinks that I could do that. And that was really, it was really interesting. It, and it wasn't, it sounds like, a, it, I'm making myself sound like I was self-sound like I was really unconfident and, and I wasn't, it was just, it just wasn't, just hadn't occurred to me. And so I felt just, so, I think sometimes, we all like have the scope to don't realize the scope we have to kind of influence people's lives and careers and sometimes just a short comment like that can actually set off yeah. set off a sort of a, 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 a course of action for somebody that you you, you don't you, you wouldn't know that you prompted so I think it's all I think feedback to people and kind of being thoughtful about that is really important yeah I wonder how many people think that far ahead as well versus thinking a few years ahead and I I think I'll probably think more what's like three steps ahead rather than what's like the end kind of to get to that that kind of point although I know I know some people do of course yeah exactly and I think there's a lot to be said for that isn't there because I think you can over plan and I think as long as you feel like you're 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 learning and you're, you're enjoying and you're yeah. you've got some stretch in what you're doing it's normally the right thing to be doing I think and and one, one decision follows another. When you said feedback from others is critical mm. to reappraising and developing the value we can all add to the causes we believe in. And I think for me, that's really what I'm interested in is what value can I add to the causes that mm. I support? And that for lots of people in the sector, that's, that's something we're looking towards. So what, what did you mean by that? Feedback from others is critical and that kind of reappraising and working out what's the value we can add. Sorry, I realise I'm asking you to think back yeah. six years and explain <laughs> the granular detail, but I was just, I'm, I'm assuming that's kind of something that you've thought about and, uh, yeah, I'd just be kind of interested to hear. I think I sort of meant what, what we've just been talking about, really. I think I meant, I do believe that feedback is like, the, is, is feedback from others is so, so valuable to help you work out how you can be better mm -hmm. and where you're kind of, what you've done well, what you haven't, what you've and less well how you can yeah how you can how you can how you can be better <laughs> but so I think we're not always very open to feedback and I'm not always open to feedback either I think sometimes you just don't want to hear it or you haven't got time to hear it or yeah or you just don't want to and, and also you don't have to accept all the feedback you get from people there'll be bits that you agree with and can take forward and there's bits that you might think I understand why you've said that but actually I I'm I'm, I'm I'm not going to do anything about that. I don't think that's fair or, or whatever. Mm. You can you, you can interpret the feedback as you want. But I think it's the kind of bits of advice or feedback from other people that really help shape you and give you a bit of insight into how you come across and how you how you manage things. So I think, and I don't mean like big formal appraisal feedback, although that is really important and has its place too. I mean, I think there's a value in I, well, I've really valued the kind of networks of people who know me, maybe from maybe previous managers, maybe people I've managed previously who perhaps know me in a work context, whose view I value. They are the sort of people I'd ask advice about if I had a work mm. issue now, because they know what I'm like at work. <laughs> and, 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 and sometimes that kind of friendly perspective or, or pointer can be can just be really useful I think kind of keeping those connections is is, is is really valuable 
in terms of that actual quote, trying to think what I meant more specifically. Yeah, don't don't worry so much about that, maybe, because I think you've answered it really well. And actually, I think as well as it being difficult sometimes to accept feedback, mm. it, I was thinking it, it can be really difficult to get the feedback in the first place. Yeah. And actually, that, that makes sense in terms of asking people that you've worked with before so they know what you're like as a professional and so on. But there's, a, I suppose, a, a sort of independence that means they can give you that honest feedback. So I think it can be difficult to get feedback from people that you're managing. Yes. Probably easier to get it from someone who's managing you. But even, or, you know, from external, for me, from, from clients, it's really difficult to get people to give you really kind of direct, honest feedback. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I think sometimes it's, I think that is true. And people, some people are more practiced at doing it than mm. others. And I think if you understand the value of that, you know, in terms of your work as a as a consultant, I think that is almost part of the deal a bit. Like to give some, I think I would feel comfortable, and I know you quite well. So maybe that that's that's an element of it too, isn't it? Because I think knowing how important it is, I think it's a very helpful thing to do for other people. So I think for that, if where I, but you do have to have some kind of relationship of trust, I think. Mm. Otherwise, it affects how it's received or can damage that relationship. So I think I personally, I would feel confident feeding back to consultants or freelancers or other people that we're working with. But I would have to have some kind of established relationship with them to do that, honestly, I think. And I think that's perhaps why it's challenging working with clients more generally to always get it. Yeah. But you don't perhaps have that depth of relationship. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's maybe a little action point for myself to just lodge as a, just thinking about the best way to request it, to get it in a meaningful way, because it's about making it easy for people, isn't it, when you're asking something of them as well in, in different ways, so not just, yeah. I mean, yeah, like a survey link can be easy in terms of then it being, I can do it at the length time and things but then sometimes I think it's difficult to give constructive feedback in that way rather than mm. you know verbally mm. in conversation where you can explain what you mean by things so it's also about listening isn't it because yeah. sometimes it's more people don't say or in a very slight mm. and sometimes I think that somebody's there's something to me that's quite a slight or throwaway comment and then I've just gone back and forth about it and thought I think maybe there was something in that too. Mm. okay and and more broadly I wanted to ask you what sort of resources you find useful in your work. So that may be a bit more about people and mentoring and that type of thing, but also things like kind of books and training, websites, newsletters, subscriptions, all of those kind of things. What what you find useful, what, what you might recommend for other people to use? You know, I've definitely found in this role that there is a need for more training or for sort of filling gaps and skills and knowledge and that and that's just a continual state of the world isn't it you oh, always yeah. have gaps and skills and knowledge that you need to fill but I think that's relatively straightforward to do usually what has been most helpful for me is coaching and not all the time don't have that, but a particularly at key transition points so like when I started this role when something's particularly difficult I found coaching really helpful because I think ultimately absolutely it's sort of a given that you have to keep on top of your skills and knowledge and make sure that's appropriate for the context you're working in ultimately what helps or hinders us is us isn't it it's in the long run it's how we are and how we are around other people and how we are at managing stress or conflict what our resilience is like how good we are at influencing other people and that is all about you it's about who you are and how you operate and that coaching has been help really helpful to me in just kind of shining a light a bit back on that uh-huh. and trying to and trying to trying to understand where I go wrong and what I do well and how I can can apply that and just thinking about it all a bit more more mm-hmm. carefully particularly with kind of transitions or if you're having like a difficult time in, in your and most people when things are difficult it's normally about people about relationships at work I think coaching can be really really helpful for that so and the kind of coaching that I found really helpful is sort of absolutely kind of reflecting and prompting that kind of self-reflection but also bringing in a little bit of advice and suggestions on how to move forward mm-hmm. so that kind of not completely open uh, and I, yeah I've, I've, that's been transformational for me really we all need a bit of it 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so not just constantly saying, and how does that make you feel? And what do you think about that? But saying, oh, and here, here's some things you might want to try, <laughs> or here's some, here's some thought exercises. Exactly. And, and there are, you can learn stuff about, um, of course, about how, about culture and people and how things yeah. work. But, and there are some useful, there's some useful sort of models and theory that goes with that. But I think ultimately you have to work through what that means for you. Yeah, yeah how, how you can use that. Because I think ultimately, whatever role you're doing, the challenge is bring sort of the best, the best version of yourself to it and to try and do that as often as you can. Yeah. So I, I would say, you know, for everybody and, and absolutely for me during homeworking and COVID in the last few years my energy is up and down my resilience mm-hmm. is up and down and I know that when I'm not always bringing the best of myself to work I absolutely know when I'm not doing that and you have to just give yourself a break for that sometimes mm-hmm. and when my resilience is down and my energy is down I am snappier I'm less patient I'm I'm I'm, I'm a less supportive colleague I want to be the all that I can be when I'm at my best Mm. so I think coaching helps you a little bit with that but it's also just about trying to manage that energy in yourself a bit but that's sort of ultimately I think what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be the better version of me yeah yeah. into the office as much as I can (laughs) (laughs) recognizing that not everybody gets it all the time (laughs) but that's ultimately what I'm just trying to do and just to say that my last comment wasn't a dig at coaching, but just to say that I suppose the the skill, the what a really good coach brings is that ability to enable you to reflect effectively and then also to help you to, to kind of move through things. And you mentioned that was mainly through key transition points. So mm. have you used a coach rather than it being someone that you see on an ongoing regular basis? Is it that... Uh, certain points you'll you'll get in touch with them and get three six sessions or, or is it more of an ongoing thing no much less so I think I did six sessions when I started this role to help the transition through this role uh-huh. and then gone back a few times since so not yes much more likely than that not a few a few times here and there or maybe yeah as you say if there's a particular challenge three three sessions but you know not every year and not and more now just at particular points but I think I think I sort of know myself well enough to think oh, I'm not dealing with this very well. I, I need to get a, I need to step back from it and help some somebody needs to help me try and sort of sort out what's going on and find a better way forwards. But yeah, not uh, so yes, I use it now as just to sort of to help me if there's something particularly difficult. But yeah, not not often. But I think in everybody's working life it's probably useful at some point. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned there a little bit about the kind of energy and the difference working from home, the kind of energy flows. I think in in that article reference, you mentioned those kind of unrealistic expectations and things. So Mm -hmm. the next question I wanted to ask is a bit about how you structure your life. So I suppose there's two elements to that. One is around structuring your working time. So whether that's having particular days of the week for particular themes or whether it's how you kind of structure your your day, your working hours and that kind of thing. And then and then the other part is about how you balance that energy and, you know, what what your working hours look like and how you switch off and that side of things. You know, in a way, I, I, I think I've, str- I've struggled a bit with the shift sort of post pandemic changes. I even know I am more introvert. I still get energy from other people and I, I do I, I've missed that so I have a balance now I do office two days a week and three days at home one of the things I think as in most roles the, as you get into more senior roles you have one of the things you get is a bit more control around your time so you might get a lot of pressures on your time but you also get a sort of bit more ability to control it and manage it and I found that actually particularly pre-pandemic really helpful so I will pay quite a lot of attention to managing my diary I am better in the mornings or actually in the evenings. I'm worst sort of post-lunch when I really want to be having a siesta. <laughs> so um, so that so what I do is I schedule make if I if I can, I schedule my meetings for after lunch. And that sounds really rude, the people I'm meeting, but you do need less energy to be in a meeting than you do to say write a strategy paper or right. really focus on an issue. So I normally put things like might mean like regular meetings like one-to-ones and internal meetings, but always put would put those after lunch. So it's just thing and and then if I was 
had to do a bigger pitch or something that was quite uh, needed quite a lot of focus and energy and I, I would be really careful about where I put that in my diary and what I put around it mm. so I think you can that has absolutely saved really focusing on my diary management has really saved me through when it was particularly when it was very precious and actually now it's less less precious in a way I probably have less it feels like I have less meetings because they're just done quickly on teams rather than taking out an afternoon to go and come back etc but I think that diary management is still important when I was when I started in the role and it was really really heavy going and it was it was really precious I was very very tired by the end of the week and that was because it was quite a lot of front-facing work and I didn't have very much time for myself and someone said to me we just need to find a way that you recover fastest so for some people that's yoga for some people that's running and it doesn't matter what it is but just do the thing that is going to get your energy levels back quickest so I I, it turned out that my thing was probably for the first six months in that role was to spend Saturday afternoons watching Agatha Christie on BBC Three or UK (laughs) Comms And I just lie on the sofa and watch reruns of Miss Marple for yeah. um, probably about four hours, <laughs> and then and then and I thought, well, that's fine. I'm not going to suddenly start running more than I do run. I do do yoga, but I thought, you know, that was the that was the thing that got me. I needed that. I needed to get my energy back. So I think there is something about you just do what works for you and don't don't feel like you've got to take up Pilates if unless you actually it's helpful for you to do that yeah. but I think now I have it's I'm, I'm I generally don't work over my hours I think I'm I find I think it's I find it quite hard to sit at a desk for seven hours look at a screen because I've not done that in my working life for quite a long yeah. until COVID really because I was always in roles that had some element of external stuff in them so I was always going out to meetings doing as well as being in the office but I I was very rarely sat at my screen for seven hours and I have a real appreciation for colleagues who have always done that because I think it is incredibly difficult we all have monkey brains we need to be jumping around different trees and like doing different things and I think sitting at a screen is is very very hard to do so I I, even if there's a, a range of things during the day in terms of content I still find that quite difficult yeah and are you finding you manage to switch off okay you fairly disciplined about having a certain point in the day particularly when you're working from home that you turn off email notifications and all of that kind of thing and manage to to switch off from work I don't I don't work yeah absolutely and I think that's really I think that's important in a leadership role as well I think it's important not to be sending emails and doing stuff Mm -hmm. on the weekends and I think it creates an expectation for other people so I am good at doing that. I think the things sometimes things stay with you to like filter and think about. So I will think about things outside of work hours, but I won't send emails and actually do work outside of work hours now, really. That was different when I, but I think it's a different phases, aren't there, in your working life and mm-hmm. and what the organisation needs from you. So I think at the beginning, there was a, there was a lot to do. Well, there was still a lot, of course, there's a lot to do, but, you know, there was particularly, it was particularly hard work and I was in a new role and trying to navigate that. and. I think something that all chief execs have is certain level of drive and that sort of can be personal at all for drive for the and ambition for the organization and so there are times when you do work hard and and do really need to push it I think that's quite an interesting dilemma because I think probably particularly younger generations are perhaps better about being more boundaried about their time which is a good thing than, than perhaps for me an older generation but I think there's an element where sometimes you do need to go for it and you do need to push things, do need to have that drive and energy to push things forward. And that can take more of you than your work-life balance could sustain in the long run. And personally, you all have to find your own balance with that. And for me, I think that's okay. And I've done that for, uh, for, for there's been years when that's work has definitely taken over for me. And I've been able to do that and I've wanted to do that because it's part of the cause and the value and I put on what I'm doing and the, the organization I'm working working for but I can't do that no one can do that all the time mm. so for me I think you have to have peaks and troughs and you have to know when it's the time to kind of really go for it and then you need to take some time back as in you need to you need to then be more boundaries and you need to have your let other things in your life to come forward as well and it, I think it's a balance for me over time rather than on a weekly basis because I think it's impossible to but maybe, you know, I don't have children and so, so, you know, there are 
restrictions on people with caring responsibilities have restrictions over their work and may not be in that position to be able to do that so mm. I think it is a personal choice but for me I am much more boundary now than I used to be but I think I'm in a position where I'm able to do that at this point and like and I think that probably wouldn't have got I wouldn't have delivered as much for the charity if I'd always worked in that same way I think the peaks and troughs work for me. I'm going to ask you next about a particular achievement and it's something that I spoke to Mark about just the other week and so I'll I'll let you know what Mark mentioned so we don't hopefully recover the same ground too much but we we spoke about the Autism Act it's obviously a huge achievement for the NAS and something that you were involved in well Mark described you as being the driving force and the reason for it happening essentially so i wanted to kind of dig into that in a little bit more detail with you and understand how the team managed to achieve that how how that success came about so mark mentioned a few things as he mentioned the strength of of the team talked about the lobbying of individual mps and also the public awareness to motivate those mps and and a big factor of that being around mobilizing parents of children with autism to write to their MPs and share their personal testimonies and then also the simplicity of the bill and also the fact that the NAS drafted it for them and essentially made it that much easier to say yes to and the importance Mm -hmm. of also having in there that the the developer strategy and it would be reviewed every five years so that it wouldn't kind of sit on the shelf but it would there was that commitment there so I'm not sure the best way to frame the question (laughs) But I would love to hear a bit more about that process from you in terms of that, what the kind of, what the strategy was for getting the autism bill and then the act, what the plan was, what what you think made that a success? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because when I listen to the points Mark made, they're all absolutely right. I think there is something intangible about big campaign successes because you could have a campaign now that did all those things but still didn't get there. So there is always some element of, not luck exactly, but there's an element of things coming together and getting momentum. And when you're in a campaign that's working, you really feel that. You feel like you're moving. You feel like it's getting its going. And conversely, when it doesn't feel like that, it's incredibly frustrating. So there was something about things coming together that sort of that, that works and it's really hard to kind of completely articulate what exactly that is and to replicate it but for me I, I think of the autism that that whole piece of work as a sort of 10-year campaign it didn't was never set out as a 10-year campaign but in retrospect that's sort of the, the whole piece that's what it was what it represents or what I'm proud of about is it it was about putting adults with autism on the agenda mm. at a, a national and local level in a way they just weren't so that's what really what the campaign was about. Where it came from is, I think, at the time, I was working with a really talented policy officer who's called uh, uh, Mia Rosenblatt. And, and we, were, we were working on adult policy and just feeling like it was so frustrating because everything, we were ch- trying to chip in on all these broader agendas, but there was no kind of space to really think about the kind of really extreme kind of social exclusion and really challenging experiences that adults with autism were having. And it just felt there was no space for that within, within government policy. It felt there was no room for us. So we were kind of trying to chip in on, on the valuing people and learning disability policy work, but it was quite difficult with for people with autism that didn't have a learning disability. It's unclear where they, where they fitted. And then there was broader disability policy, but we were always feeling like we were trying to, be, we're at the table going, and autism, and autism. And it felt like we had no space to talk about the challenges uh, or, to, or to create space for adults with autism to talk about the challenges that they were experiencing in their own terms. And so remember, remember I saying, what we need is we need like a white paper, we need a bill, we need something to create the space and to have our own agenda within government rather than just be on the edges of everyone else. And I think that was, that's what it was about and that was the thing. And I think that's what it achieved really, it created that space. It hasn't changed everything for adults with autism and in terms of the kind of funding environment since, and those challenges are absolutely still there. But it did create, in, in the, at the national and local level, it created space for those conversations to happen. So it is about the bill, but it's more about the strategy that followed the funding, that there was a team at DH, there was, it had profile stuff that followed through on diagnostic guidelines. There was a, 
a structure at a local level and you had to have a plan at a local level. So it just created this infrastructure and space to have those kind of conversations and for people to be heard. And yeah, I'm not quite sure. I think that I think it, it sort of built in momentum as it went. And the bill was a really useful, was a really key point in that. And I think it kind of coincided actually with kind of culturally autism becoming a bit higher profile. It did really didn't feel like that at the time when we started because there wasn't any really social policy research around experiences of adults with autism. The phrase we used was isolated and ignored. It felt like they lots of the autism conversations were about children and about schools, and there wasn't really any dialogue about adults but that did come in popular culture and things like curious incident of the dog in the night time and those kind of stories that involved adults and things so that, that, that sort of that, and I think that helped that, that sort of developed independently kind of alongside the work that we we're doing and the pro help with the profile that was the achievement of that campaign and if I knew completely how to completely bottle it and recreate it I would be doing it doing it again <laughs> but I think it does show of the importance of like being ambitious sometimes uh, yeah. and sometimes you know you feel like you're on the edge and you can't get center stage in the conversation what that I learned from that whole campaign or series of campaigns was how important it is sometimes just to stick to what your what your central concern is and just to have mm. real tenacity and just keep going on and on <laughs> and using all different routes you can and particularly political influence to really just just insist on that space and can create that space so it kind of a lot of campaigning can be sort of reactive so you're looking at government policy and then you're reacting to it and trying to change it and that's really really important role for the campaigners it shows that sometimes you yeah, that ambition is is well placed. I think. Yeah, so I understand it's it's about kind of setting that ambition and then really doing the work. As in, you know what good campaigning looks like. You get on and do it, and and it's very much a a kind of fluid environment. In that, as you say, you're responding to maybe what's happening in the media, what's happening in the political context, and those kind of things. And you you're making that progress through that lobbying and and campaigning. And, and there's an answer as well. There's a solution. I think that's yeah. what is sometimes really hard about campaigning. It's always easy to say what's wrong. It's sometimes hard to form a solution. So we had done that policy work. There were some quite clear things that we wanted. And it's much easier to campaign when you've got a solution that we could then. Mm. I mean, it's quite broad, you know, but we, we'd written the strategy we wanted. We, we wrote the bill that, that would enable it. So we had something to say, and this is what you can do. And I think for politicians, particularly less so for civil servants, but for politicians, that's very attractive because then they can just champion that solution rather than just raise the issue. So I think that that's really key. And you mentioned it's, yeah. it's difficult to work out what are the kind of key things and then to, to set those. And so if you go back to when you set the ambition, so you know the, you put in the... NAS's organisational strategy to achieve to get a, a a bill through Parliament. How do how do you then put the steps beneath that? So you know you have your strategic objective, and then you might kind of set in place a series of kind of targets or metrics. But with with this type of work, it feels like it's it's really difficult to do that sort of thing. So how how do you structure that when you're when you're at that, that kind of starting point of the campaign? Yeah, I think campaigning is always a bit more fluid than that. So it was never in NAS's organisational strategy to achieve an autism bill. In the policy team's ambition right. to try and create that space, a white paper, a bill or something, so we have more space for these issues. And organisationally, there was a lot of feeling that particularly the gaps for people with autism that didn't have a learning disability, that something needed to be done around that. That it was support for that kind of board, that concept. But there wasn't, yeah, I don't think you could have made a plan, to, an organisational plan to do it and then do it. I think it was more, it has to be more fluid. I think what you can do, though, is you you can think what are the, what are the basic building blocks of that? And that would have been in our plan. So mm. strong political support. So, and you can measure that in metrics. So we, we did have strong political supports cross party in both houses of parliament pre-bill and that had been built up over time. So, and you can measure that through the kind of the polling surveys of MPs and peers. So, you know, that, that can 
and we had the more output metrics on how on achieving that and then we had the you need the policy solutions and the policy work to be done so we had we could put our own internal target on doing that work and do the, and doing the research of people with autism obviously it was our sorry first bit really in terms of understanding the issues and bringing them forward so you can put i think put blocks in place i think you never know whether it's going to go it starts off as a 10 minute rule bill whether we were going to get a slot on the private members bills if we hadn't been got a slot on the private members bill we probably would, I, I feel like we would have got it some other way but I don't quite, you can't really set out too specifically specifying the route it's going to take, I think. You can specify, you can set out the building blocks and what puts you in a strong position to achieve change. And then you've got to have a bit of guts to kind of take the opportunities that come up. Not a very helpful answer for planning. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a it's a complex, it, yeah, it's, it. I mean, it's, well, like lots of, work in the charity sector you're working in complexity so it's just an interesting challenge around how much you can effectively plan versus how much you need to recognize that you, there are so many external factors that you need that are, you're dependent on as well yeah I, I think and i think it's a it's a balance with policy and campaigns work particularly because and i think it's a bit of a cop-out when people say they can't plan at all so you can plan to get those building blocks and have that kind of core approach right and I suppose you can, what the Autism Act stuff shows is that you can have a proactive objective and just keep going after it, as well as kind of having some space as about 40% is the same kind of plans to react to other things. But you, 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 if there is a value in having that kind of forward plan. And as soon as we had that, the plans were, it wasn't that it was all unplanned because the plans were there, but they were probably sort of six months at a time kind of plans. With that broader objective at the top, that they would have taken slightly, those six months plans would have taken slightly different routes depending on, yeah, what happens at each stage. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And I mean, that's part of the plan is to have unplanned time, isn't it? As you say, if you're saying 40% of the time the team will be reactive and responding to things as they come up, then that's part of that plan, isn't it? It's quite a useful thing yeah. to be aware of. And then one of the other things that I thought might be interesting to pick up on is the mm -hmm. D dcp that campaign which or that what do you call it coalition can you tell us a bit more about that and yeah so that's in a way a little bit similar because it's we are all as the, the the disabled children sector is quite diverse in that it has a quite a few very large well it has large children's charities that work on include disabled children in their remits as large disability charities that work on adults and children's issues as well. And then it has quite a lot of small disabled children's charities, perhaps set up by individual parents or around particular conditions. So there's quite a diffuse sector, I suppose, in, in a lot of ways. And I felt that on some of the really big issues, like core issues that were affecting services for disabled children, like funding, <laughs> it, it was there were things that we needed to kind of plug together on because they're quite hard for the individual organizations to pick off and take on their on on their own and I think there's some of the small grassroots organizations had a lot of insights and a lot of energy and some of the larger organizations had more resource but perhaps less capacity to focus on the issues affecting children because they're working across the whole the whole age range so I think it's a sector where that kind of bringing those things together really made sense and the partnership is partnership of a hundred, just over a hundred so now organisations, and has a steering group of twelve. I think thirteen now. I think it, it works really well as a partnership. I think, and partly because we set out to be with a kind of quite clear campaigning goal, and a bit like the Autism Act to try and move forward a conversation about funding for disabled children, social care services, sorts of services that help children leave ordinary. And their families leave ordinary lives. So one of the things we, we had in our campaign plan was a £50 million disabled children's fund to look at the kind of cost to, to, to support services, but also to show the cost benefit of investing in children's services that would help us for future comprehensive spending reviews. So we had a larger aim of increasing funding overall services. And this year that came through as a £30 million fund, not £50 million, but it was still a kind of step forward which wouldn't have happened with, without the partnership so I think it 
but it's also a little bit like the Autism Act where it's it's a proactive campaign that's about setting out the store and what you want and, and coming up with a solution that's, that's, that's been quite effective. But I was also, it is, it is hard. It is really hard campaigning environment now and it, it's harder than it was when, when Autism Act work was going through. And I think I was really struck when we we're trying to set up the Disabled Children's Partnership. There were voices, really well-meaning voices from people who'd campaigned more in the Labour government years who were saying to us and to funders, this isn't the time for a big campaign on disabled children. It's the context is difficult, you know, and this was what was it six years ago? And it had been at that point. 10 years since aiming high for disabled children, which was a big investment in disabled children services. So, and I really felt like, goodness, that's, they're right in a way. It's really going to be really, really hard to achieve change. But if you don't, you're almost writing off a whole generation because it, you know, that was, was 10 years since the last major initiative. And that was six years ago and it's not getting any easier. So do you just not, do you just not campaign in that period? And I think that's it's a really difficult debate because that was a conversation we we're having with funders. Funders have come through and they did say, okay, we will invest, see what you can do as a partnership and as a collaboration. And they were willing to invest in that. So hugely grateful for them for showing that support because without that, I think we really would have struggled to move forward. But it's a really hard debate. Is it just too hard? Yeah. And are you better off as charities focusing on service provisions, so focusing on other things? But you can't effectively, I think, sort of hold true to your mission and effectively give up on like 20 years. You know, a child could, could have been born, grown up, left school <laughs> in that time. And, and, you, and you've not really, and, and, you, and you, you've not really tried to, to affect change. And I think, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. And that being more difficult to campaign now, is that specifically around disabled children? Or is that more broadly? Is that the nature of funding environment or political change i think it's more i think it's the the statutory fund public service funding is makes it difficult because a lot of the services and support that disabled children need cost money so it it is a hard it is a difficult context to be arguing for that the funding that those services need and support requires I mean, actually, I felt through through the through the pandemic, particularly that first year, because we're working with a group that are particularly disadvantaged, were particularly disadvantaged through COVID. It felt like that conversation with government became a lot more open and a lot and, a, and more regular and fast moving. And so, actually, I think that shifted that did that did open up some doors and it did sort of shift the kind of the feeling of the the kind of lobby versus government kind of relationship in a positive way but I think it's also just uh, yeah I think it's financial pressures and distraction and and other issues that makes it quite 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 tricky at the moment. With some of the things that you'd be asking for when you're campaigning for um, disabled children is it not the case that if public services were to spend now that they would actually save in the long term in terms of reducing the need for more acute services and things like that? Yeah, that's right. And there's plenty of evidence, not least evidence conducted by government itself that kind of demonstrates that. But that was the kind of piece of the £30 million fund I I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier is to kind of increase that strength of that evidence base because it's 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 quite good. It's just not quite strong enough um, in in, in, in terms of some of the, the longer term investment that's required. So, yeah, it is about, and it's difficult to strengthen that evidence base because you have to, it's quite longitudinal yeah. over time. There's always var- mixed variables within it, but it, it, it is, I think it sort of recognised as a sort of general truth, but when you're trying to, to get specific and quite large scale investments in the short term, the more, the more, the stronger the evidence base, the better, obviously. And do you think if there is a point, because I don't know what's the, there's no kind of, at this specific point, we have the evidence we need. There's no kind of, I don't know what that point would be. If you were to reach that point, do you think that there will ever be a government or a set of decision makers that will just be able to get past that psychological mindset of needing to invest heavily now for, and to save in the long term, but they need to, they need to spend out of their budgets to save 
future budgets that that always seems to be the stumbling block do you think do you think that's a case of more evidence or do you think that's there's a more of a kind of cultural issue there yeah it's both isn't it it's it's and and that's why effectively we decided just to go ahead and set up the, the partnership because it is about political will at the end of the day and and so that and, and I guess again going back to autism that's what that showed me really where you've got that political will and backing you 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 can you can move beyond not beyond any evidence but you can move you can move forward basically I think it's the single most important thing I've lost my train of thought <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to say just about the table children's budget my learning from that is where campaigning is quite hard it's really nice to work with other people so collaborations across the sector are really important for the sector as well I know that sounds really weird but it's really nice to work with other, and there's so many brilliant people across the sector and what for me what makes DCP work is that it's always had really good people engaged with it and those people have changed over the years and it's really nice to work with those people on a kind of common common goal so I think there is something there is a benefit to the sector of for our all actually for the parents and you know people that are working with us as well there's something about that feeling of being in it together and working together when sometimes it can feel quite isolated as an individual organization when you're trying trying you know, keep knocking on the doors and keep getting turned away and I think there's something really good about collaboration for our all of our morale and our kind of encouragement as well it's important yeah. And I think those, once those working relationships develop, they can lead to other things as well as the the original reason. But something, another challenge or opportunity comes up, and you you have that working relationship, you have that trust already developed, and so you can you can respond more quickly to to the new, whether it's a funding opportunity or a a particular issue for the the community you support. Yeah, absolutely. And that partnership with them has always been really it's part of contacts dna i think and we really really value what our partners can bring and place a lot of store by being a good partner to others because it is about the wider cause rather than what we do as an individual organization i think that's important so yeah so i was just wondering as we're talking through the that coalition there and you mentioned having the funding for it. How how is that resourced? I know you mentioned the steering group, and then is there one member of staff hosted by a, a lead organisation, or is it just those different policy people from each area? What's what? How is it kind of practically managed? Yeah. So when we set it up, we went out. We sort of went right out and asked for people's views and what they would be prepared to sign up to, and. We, the steering group is made up of organisations that contribute financially. So okay. the membership is open to everybody and then the steering group members um, make a, a, a contribution annually. Um, so we started with that. And then because we were coming together, we were putting our own money in. We had the support of a, of a trust, the True Colours Trust, who, who in, in, invested in, in us to sort of to match that funding initially and then because and and supported us for a number of years and then because of the progress we were able to make and because it began became quite an important partnership during the pandemic because we were all so stretched during the pandemic um, and so I'm not talking about that in the past tense but I mean in that first year of COVID but we were all organizations are so stretched and having a being able to come together to do some of the insight work and feeding that into government became really important and another of the PES Foundation then came in and increased our, our funding particularly around the evidence base so established PES Learning Hub at, 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 at DCP which has enabled us to really up the insight and research and evidence that we're able to draw on and feed into the to the campaigning work and, and the model initially we started working with an agency so we worked with Portland who were a public affairs agency rather than having too much in-house staff but um, Mencap have always hosted, and then we now have uh, three members of staff who are hosted by Mencap, funded a mixture through the steering group organisations and the foundations. So it's kind of grown, and I think it was important to be willing to show a commitment to putting some of our own resources in, and to that kind of shared ownership for the campaign was important for the funders, I think. Okay, so you've got those three members of staff, and then the members of the steering group obviously contribute both time and money 
and then the wider membership are they then given opportunities to input in terms of providing that kind of grassroots feedback yeah. from families on the ground and is, is that their how they kind of then connect into how it kind of joins together yeah that's right so we on the kind of practicalities of it steering group meet monthly and members all members meet uh, quarterly but then we have particular like if there's a particular working group or yeah particular working group or area to focus on that's opened up to members as well so people can volunteer to, to join in some additional additional pieces with with steering group members as well and most of the kind of meetings media that sort of stuff is tends to be led by by, by steering group members and it kind of works on what everyone can volunteer and offer and I really think that those kinds of coalitions and partnerships should be of real benefit to the organisations that are part of them as well so they should be a, a sort of vehicle to give people whether on a personal level in terms of their own development or in terms of their organisation's profile they should be and create opportunities to give them access to meetings that maybe they wouldn't ordinarily go to or just ways of working in the sector more, more, more broadly or spokespeople roles or, or whatever so we're kind of always keen to try and in, enable that to come through and then jumping from all of these positive developments i wonder if i can ask about a more negative experience when something's not gone well or when there's been some kind of crisis that you've had to manage what sort of experience could you share with us from that perspective I struggled a little bit with this question not because i haven't had negative experiences it's because i'm what's appropriate to share really nothing goes wrong under my command <laughs> exactly <laughs> I mean, I just think in general, all the difficult when things are, what what makes our work, and actually just talking about DCP, what makes DCP great is the people are great who are who 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 are involved, and what also makes things challenging is when there is conflict or difference of view or performance issues or that's all the stuff that's difficult, isn't it? It's the stuff that makes us kind of stress and take away and hold on to and think about it. It's those have been probably the kind of lower points in my career is where there's been really difficult things to start to work through and at contact we are largely reliant on restricted income so that means that we do need to do redundancy consultations reasonably regularly because funding comes to an end mm. we, we finish that we have to finish that piece of work and that is incredibly difficult for everybody at times has been particularly challenging where we've had big chunks of funding come to an end and not had replacement funding come, come through in time so managing that or is, is always is challenging. And I think the only way to do that is to well, obviously try and avoid it in the first place. But because we don't have very much unrestricted income, it, it is inevitable in our funding model at the moment is just to try and manage those processes in a way that is as open and as fine, as fair as they can be. But they are inevitably difficult things to manage oh yeah it's one of the downsides of that funding model isn't it it is it is it really is and that contact is to try and it's try, always it's always trying to develop those unrestricted income streams so we can manage out the bumps bumps and the gaps between between program funding and that's particularly particularly challenging for us where there is so much demand and so much need in terms of our services we'll have a lot of funding at the moment on 12 months so that is that always is the anxiety is like how we need to make sure that we can mm. continue some of those services because it's not just the impact on the organization of managing those redundancies and the end of a program it's what that means for those families so it's it's trying the, the kind of the sort of worry of that is always sort of a little bit there so, and you just have to kind of make sure the processes and the steps are there and you're doing everything we can to try and make sure that those drops off but that we don't drop off in services because we want to be there for families and we well, you know the challenges that fundraising brings so it's a complicated jigsaw sometimes and i think that's that's uh, that's where the challenge is final question is going to be a silly one and it's if you weren't being a charity chief exec then assuming income's no issue you can do anything you want if you want to be a brain surgeon, doesn't matter that you've got no medical training, <laughs> whatever you would like, what do you think you might be doing? Um, weirdly, what I've, what I've always thought I, I would do instead is um, 
you need people in, I don't even know what this is called, this job, but you know, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to be like a restorer of things, like in like somebody, like somebody, you know, there's people who work for the National Trust who like maybe restore intricate bits of wallpaper or paintings or something uh-huh. like that. I don't know what that's called, but that kind of detail and focus and the, the, the really appeals to me, which is really odd because I think actually one of my skills is more big picture and strategy, but there is something about that kind of historical restoration, I suppose is called. That's what I would quite like. I always thought I'd quite like to do that. But on the on a on a on a broader note, I think what I've been feeling whilst working through COVID is I'd like to be outside more. And that's quite hard mm. to that's quite hard to reconcile with a yeah. um with a with a uh, a, 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 well, a, check, a CEO role really yeah. and so I'm not quite that's my challenge is how to kind of incorporate that <laughs> which might be yeah. a little bit difficult <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's a reaction to sitting in front of the screen or not. I was going to say it's even more so isn't it now that you're you're just doing things on Zoom and Teams as opposed to as you say you'd be kind of traveling across different bits of London at least and then and then going off to different parts of the country to visit services and so on Whereas now you kind of just <laughs> click a button and speak to someone, you know, wherever. Exactly. So if I wasn't going to be a sort of historical restorer, <laughs> I think I would be 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 outside more. And I think also the pandemic kind of helped everyone a bit think about being in nature and being the environment around them. So I think that's also mm. played a role a little bit, as well as being on a lot of Zoom calls. Yeah. yeah. The other thing, Alex, I don't know if I'm, can I just like to add something in because it's not answered to that question. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I just, uh, <laughs> yeah, in fact, um, well, my next question was going to be, is there anything else you'd like to say? <laughs> I shouldn't have jumped in. Um, it's more going back to when we were talking earlier about mm. advice and like feedback from other people. So it's sort of more going. Yes. I just remembered one of the kind of anecdotes that I thought might be helpful to say um, mm. that your network's being helpful to so people you've worked with in the past, either your team or people who've managed you, uh, and kind of keeping in touch with them, people whose perspectives you appreciate has been helpful to me. Yeah. But I was also thinking about when we're talk, talking about, also connected, talking about feedback, sometimes being quite small things and like a helpful prompt rather than a big, like formal appraisal piece. A good example of that is my former chair, um, Paul Streets, who's chief exec of Lloyd's Foundation and is a very wise owl. When I was had recently started in the role and I, I was really, I was quite overwhelmed. There was a lot on, I think we were doing redundancy consultations. There was a lot of financial stuff to work through. There were a lot of people issues. The team wasn't quite full and it, it was quite difficult. And when I met him for my one-to-one, I just did this like, this or this or this or this and he just let me talk for about 10 minutes about all this stuff and then he just sat back in his chair and he said the thing is Amanda you can be a bit of a martyr sometimes uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was the most helpful kind of prompt I could have had I was so astounded and then I just started laughing and I thought but he was exactly right I was I was holding on to too much I was like taking taking it all on too much needed just to hold it all a bit more lightly and and support other people to take their responsibilities on and I it just sometimes it was just it just occurred to me as a thought of sometimes how feedback doesn't have to be mm-hmm. this big formal thing but just a one-off comment like that it's it can be just really helpful and it does change your approach and sometimes if I'm feeling a bit a bit snowed under I think I think of that comment and I think oh, I'm being a bit martyrish again I need to like <laughs> it's not all about me <laughs> and it's really helpful so I think it's just an example of how little bits of feedback can can be really useful and then I guess some of the advice for others is just I don't know really be open to feedback be prepared to like yeah. go out of your comfort zone sometimes on work things and be a bit you haven't quite got all the information or it is a bit of a stretch and just be willing to take something on and have a go I think that's where you that's where you do your learning word of the day martyrish yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a good uh good good reflection <laughs> okay so thank you for your time it's been really interesting any of the organizations and resources and things that you've mentioned we'll put links up on the web page so people can navigate to those 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast and thank you for making it all the way to the end. Just one more thing before you go. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do follow us and leave a rating on Apple, Spotify or whatever platform you're using. It just takes a few seconds and means a lot to me so that I know there are people listening and enjoying the podcast and it's worth investing time in producing more of these episodes. If you'd like to share your feedback, comments or have any questions on this episode in particular, please do post on Twitter, making sure you include me. That's at Alex Blake underscore Keda, K-E-D-A. Or on LinkedIn, it would be at Alex Blake with a space between the first and second name. And that should tag me so I get a notification and I can read and respond to any comments and feedback you have. I'd love to hear from you, um, if nothing else, to reassure me that someone's listening. And any specific feedback will be a huge help with positive spurring me on to do more episodes for you. And the constructive criticism will help me improve. So please don't be shy about sharing your thoughts, advice and tips. Um, it would really, really be appreciated. The Charity Impact Podcast is brought to you by Kida Consulting, the company I started in 2013 to help charities maximise their impact. I work with charities and other non-profits to develop their strategies, explore solutions to the challenges they face, increase and diversify their income, develop partnerships, review performance, undertake research and more. And really the podcast is an extension of that. The consulting work is a one-to-one -one initiative and the podcast enables me to just reach more people and, and share some of the lessons learned from people doing great work in our sector. If you'd like to find out more about us and access all of the episodes on the podcast, um, the website is kedaconsulting.co.uk. You can also there sign up for our emails to ensure you're the first to know about future episodes, articles, live events and anything else that might be happening. So thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Until next time, take care.